Hey, what's up, everybody? I am Dion Brown, and you are watching and or listening to Man versus Brand. I want to first say thank you to everyone that is watching this live. This is our first live. Very much appreciative for you guys tuning in with us on this nice, nice Thursday. It is spring. It is Lenten season. It is all the things that really drive us toward being in spaces of contemplation, of the journey of gratitude, of extending ourselves to others. And that brings up a good topic for me because I'm going to talk to acclaimed author Charles Holly. He wrote a book specifically about healing divides as it relates to race. Uh, the book is called Black and White, Healing the Racial Divide. This isn't the only book that he's written, but it's a book for which we will have a conversation about today. So when this episode is recorded and placed into the algorithms, you guys will have that information in the show notes so you can make sure you check out what Charles Holly does. I want to talk a bit about the way in which we as a society presently and historically have joined with groups in order to find ourselves in community, in tribe with one another. And when that thing is impactful, man, we move mountains as a culture, as a society. We drive innovation forward. We drive progress forward. We create amazing things. When we were younger, it was elements like the seven wonders, right? Like everybody used to talk about the seven wonders. Now we talk about Google, Facebook, YouTube, right? Yeah. They now become the wonders of yeah. We Apple, not afraid about you. See you guys. See you guys. Um, I, it, it's it's an era where so much of the wonderment of what we do as a society relies heavily on this digital connectivity, this digital space. When it's done wrong, we find ourselves in packs, in mobs, pushing forward agendas that don't serve everyone. It serves that particular group that you are affiliated with. Now, back in the day, we had witch hunts. We had mobs chasing down ethnicities. And that's not to say we don't have that now, but I think what's interesting is now we have digital forums and spaces for people to unite under this toxic understanding of community. And so what do we need to do as we contemplate and are meditative and expressing gratitude in this Lenten season about dividing not only the groups that we see that are joined together and creating negative toxic environments, but how do we heal the divide within us? How do we heal our own prejudices, our own biases, our own negative thoughts about who we are and who others are that we interact with in our life journey. So I'm glad that you guys are here. To everyone listening on the replay and watching this video, thank you guys. Make sure you click like, subscribe, do all that great stuff that you people do. So let's get this episode started in five, four, three, two, one. Yo, it's 2023 and I have a mind blowing theory to share. Are you game for it? Let's go. You are listening to Man vs. Brand, meaning you're a man or a woman and you're a brand. Or you're a man or woman who is leading and making a brand. 
Or maybe you're in fact a part man, part brand cyborg and killing it as a Terminator. With 20 years expertise in guiding and coaching, I'm having the conversations for mans, brands, womans, and corporate conglomerates like Skynet. Hasta la vista, baby. Oh, Charles, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing wonderful, Dion. I'm just so happy to be here with you today. I think we're going to have a, one electric conversation tonight. I'm with it, man. I am fully with it. So why don't let's start with some history about you. Why don't you give some some context to how you came to write this book, what your lived experience was? And I will, if you have listened to any of the episodes, interject and interrupt you. <laughs> I think that there's something to talk about. So go to the story and don't mind me. I'm just going to be listening to the group with the audience. And then when there's a question to ask, I might toss one in there. So shoot. Absolutely. So how did I get into writing about race? I'm one of those strange, unique characters. I have a very, very unique background. First of all, I was born uh, the 17th child. Yes, I said that correctly. 17th child of uh, my father. That's on my father's side. And 10th child on my mother's side. That's a long story. I won't get into that. But Short point is, I'm the youngest of 17. And born in the 1960s, right, during the Civil Rights Movement, in the South, born here in, in North Alabama, to poor sharecroppers. And we lived in a neighborhood that was mostly, mostly segregated. Um, you had blacks in one corner, and you had poor whites in the other segment of the same so, corner yes yes so it was kind of segregated but kind of desegregated in a way that when we worked in the fields picking cotton chopping cotton uh doing what what you know sharecroppers do and farmers do bailing hay we worked together so it was poor white people and poor black people working together picking strawberries you know whatever but we all went to our separate houses on different ends of the neighborhood at the end of the day. Uh, so I, I grew up during that time of bombings, Birmingham bombings. You've heard of Birmingham, Alabama being nicknamed Bombingham because there was so much terrorism going on during the Civil Rights Movement. In fact, I was four years old when the uh, the uh, girls were actually killed, you know, those you know young girls who were who were killed so it, it was it was a time for me growing up that I saw a lot of things uh, that no young man should ever see well pause so, so yes let, let's talk about that right so, so you brought up this very important historical moment mm -hmm. right and 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 historical moment in so many ways historic in the tragedy of what occurred mm -hmm. um, historic in the way that it 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 catalyzed and energized some folks that might have been on the fence about the civil rights movement to really Absolutely. get involved, right? And it became a cautionary tale mm -hmm. of what hate unchecked could do, yes. right? Because there's a period where we think hate has to do with adults and, yeah. you know, it's you have done this to me, you have wronged me in this mm -hmm. way, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But once it now bleeds into children, it starts to create a very different understanding about responsibility, yeah. and culpability, and and you know, and, and yeah. just 
how much do you actually have a part to play mm -hmm. in the hate when you're so young, right? So yes. you're, you're around during that period. You're young too yourself, right? Yeah, so what's, absolutely. What's your understanding about race during those very pivotal yeah. times where, where it was on fire? The only thing that I truly understood from that early age, four years old, five years old, going on six, was that no white person should ever be trusted. Got it. That's the message that I received from my father. Uh, my father was a very religious person, you know, deacon in the church, but he had constant battles with white people in the neighborhood. In fact, the white people called him that crazy N-word. Uh, he would take a shotgun out and shove it in a white person's face and tell him, get out of my yard or I'll send you to meet Jesus. You know, He was that type of person. And so I learned from him and picked up from him that basically no white person was to be trusted uh, versus my mother, who was totally opposite of my father, totally opposite. I mean, she was kind, did not want any fight with anybody. But she had herself had experienced a very hard childhood growing up during the Great uh, Depression. Okay. And she had also seen what could happen to black people who got too far out of line. So she was terrified of white people. In fact, when she talked to white people, and I noticed this as a, as a five-year-old child, when she, when, whenever my mother talked to white people, she would never look them in the eyes. Now, now, here's a question. So, so let's let's pause for that because I think that there is something interesting that happens as it relates to um, the naming of things, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, the way that we name things, right? Mm -hmm. So, so we're in an era where brown can extend to those of Native American heritage, those of uh, Pacific Islander heritage, those of Caribbean heritage and in some circles that's meant to be African-American in mm -hmm. other circles it's meant to be a bit more universal right with the color brown right right use brown and that can extend to um, folks from India folks from mm -hmm. uh, Pakistan those parts of Asia uh, those parts of the world in which darker skinned people exist right right and, right. and the same I think goes for white right like there's mm -hmm. a general understanding that what that white means Caucasian, right? But there are also people that will group um, uh, Jewish people in there. Jewish people. There you go. Yeah. Um, uh, specifically, those that tend to be from Europe versus those right. that tend to be from Israel or Sephardic Jews, the darker skin. Mm -hmm. So the, the so so the ones that are sort of white appearing, right? Uh, get grouped into white, um, right? Folks that are from places in africa that mm -hmm. tend to be on the spectrum of being considered, right and they're not in fact white so so when you when you're talking about black when we're talking about white are, are you making those differentiations are you making those differentiations now in having a memory of those events like can you differentiate what your younger self was seeing or do you mean white as a specific caucasian because you're in alabama and maybe diversity doesn't exist in the same way or are you talking white as sort of this understanding of us and them? Um, when I was young, I saw white as just a skin color only. Got it. And at that time, I could even mistake people who were black, but who were light-skinned yep. as being white sometimes. Got it. 
all he knew it back then as a simple color, you know. And so when my mother would talk to people who I saw as white, she yeah. would hang she would hang her head down. Yeah. And whenever they asked her a question, she would say, "Yes, ma'am," or "No, sir," you know. And she would just keep her head down. She would never would look them look them in the eye. And I thought that was strange as a child because she would do that and then thirty minutes later we would go back out into the field where we were picking strawberries or whatever and she would talk to a black person and she would be looking them directly in the eye. Completely different demeanor. And it dumbfounded me at first as a child until I grew a little bit more and understood her history. Because she grew up during a time when you could get beat and maybe even hung for looking a white person directly in the eye. That's how, that's, that's, that's how she grew up, and that's where she got that mentality from. But me, as a child, I grew up during that, during that, that era when we had the separate but very unequal. You know, it was, in fact, we didn't even integrate a white school until the early 1970s, you know. So for someone who so. has such... This history, and I, and I don't even think we've really gotten into your personal history yet, mm -hmm. right? We're, we're still really just talking about you as a child yes. experiencing um, race, right? Yes. And privilege and access and respectability, right? Yes. Like, as a child. But, but I do want to say this, right? Like, just coming from someone that had all of that ingrained in them, right? So you're seeing mm. the rituals you're seeing yes. the performance of deferring to another race yes not looking them in the eye right so right. someone who had experienced that like did that mean that you had a longer journey in order to end up as an author who writes a book about healing the racial divide and i don't want to skip your story i just want to know like that's a long time to have that kind of indoctrinated into you. I don't have a better term for it, mm -hmm, um, but mm -hmm. or just or seeing that and internalizing that, right? So, mm -hmm. so was it? Did you find that you had to do a lot of work to get here, or was it? Or, or did you find that your life journey kind of naturally led you to the space where you sort of understood race in the way you do now? I actually think it helped me to skip past. It kind of fast forwarded me. Okay. Because of the things that, that I had seen, experienced, those things I knew now, I knew them intimately. I knew why people did certain things. And I think those things helped me to really see some things that perhaps some other people may not pick up on. Got it. You know, so, yeah, so when, when I was a, still, still young, five years old or so, when we wanted a hamburger, okay, and my father got paid like once a month or so, and and wasn't very much, but there was a local hamburger store where where we were, and when we went down there, uh, we couldn't go in through the front though. We had to go around back, step over the briars, you know, and walk up to a small dirty window and tap on it and say, "Sir, I would like a hamburger, please." And it wasn't far from the dirty window where they kept the garbage can. And the smell, as you can imagine, of rotten food and everything reached, especially when it was hot in the summertime. And so as a kid, I would be standing there with my parents looking around, observing, and they would be standing there waiting on their hamburger to come because they had to serve everybody else before they served 
the black people at the window. Okay. Okay. All right. So okay. we. No, no, we're not going. We, we're going to move to this story piece by piece. All right. You're not going to be dropping. You're not going to be dropping this stuff on me and then just kick it over to the next point. That's not what we're going to do here. All right. So, in your opinion, your humble opinion, being five year old Jew, till now, what what year was it when you were five? Ask me. Or. 1969. 69. So from 1969 to what point? Because we know that that customer service, by and large, didn't change in the civil rights movement, right? right. We right. know that we might have uh, that folks might have been able to enter into the front, but that doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean that they felt wanted right. and acknowledged and seen. And it's arguable right. whether it it's happening now in certain spaces, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. Where 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 the value of the patron is being. Um, communicated the whole Starbucks, yes. why are you waiting here? We see those things all the time. But in your opinion, from 1969, how many years was it before you sort of felt seen? Like, when was the first wow. time where maybe you 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 felt seen? You know, you may not necessarily – give me an estimate. It doesn't have to be yeah. – 1969 is the point where you were five. Was it in college? Were you in your 20s? Were you in your 30s? Were you in your 40s, 50s? Like, at what point did you feel like – you consistently started recognizing you were right. faces and beings. I would say probably about when I was in college, um, probably about around 1983, 1984, after graduating. So I'm, you know, 18, 17, 18 years old. And I think the only, the only reason that I felt that way was because I played sports and a part of our team, of course, we, we had blacks and whites, and so we went to these different restaurants and ate. Yeah. And then I didn't notice, yeah. you know, you know, blacks being last or whatever. You know, no. I saw people being served and people being cared for in the same way. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right, cool. Cool. All right. So you're five. You climbed over briars, knocking on dirty windows just for a burger. I don't even like being followed at the Gap. I love you, Gap. I'm not saying you follow me. I'm just saying that sometimes I notice you do a little follow thing. You know that. We see each other. All right. So I don't even like being followed at the Gap without someone actually genuinely and authentically wanting to help me. Don't ask me, do you need help? And then look at me like, you know, I'm trying to pocket something. Ask me that I need help and, you know, and really, really engage with me in a way that makes me want to spend money. So you're, so, so just giving a little preference, right? Like I don't even know how to deal with someone being too close to me without understanding their intention. You're actually having to eat or order your food, Mm -hmm. um, politely ask for your food, though you're, you're, they're going to expect a transaction. Mm -hmm. They're going to be paid for that. Right. And, and you are in a space that doesn't lend itself to eating. Like no one wants to eat there, but you want a burger for your family. Your dad wants to provide some food for his family, wants Mm -hmm. to treat them and Mm -hmm. has to deal with this, this strike to his dignity in -hmm. order for his kids to be a bit happier. So you're Mm -hmm. having that experience. And what do you feel? As a kid that really, I really, my little mind really absorbed everything that I saw around me and it really affected me deeply because everything that I saw that belonged to people of my complexion was either dilapidated, um, dirty, filthy, um, held 
no type of measure to what I saw my white counterpart, my white brothers and sisters had. And because I saw that, my little mind made a connection between those dirty things, those filthy things, those things that were inferior. And I saw myself as a, as a child as inferior. And I, I basically saw myself as po black trash. That's what I thought of myself. And it manifested itself. I didn't learn this until later, way later in life. But when I was young, it manifested itself in two ways in my life. Okay. The first way was I had, I had extreme lack of self-confidence. Okay. And the second thing was I had a severe stuttering problem. Now, we just talked about you joining a sports team. Mm-hmm. Right. At some point in your life. Yes. Right. So, High school. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. Um, do you find in a world where we're seeing sports programs being removed? Um, right. Just give me some comparison in terms of time frame. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sports programs are being removed. Uh, you know, Cooking classes, more of like the practical life skill classes are being removed. Music is being removed. Like, did, did you find a source of support and and empowerment and confidence that you may have not had due to having this stammer due to um, due to not feeling confident in yourself uh, due to your understandings about your own race? Did you find that? those programs in school helped you? Did they hinder you? Like how were the, how did that dynamic work for you? Cause I know that for a lot of folks, it's a big determiner in how they turned out is really sort of their understanding of, of, of some of the non-academic portions of school. Mm, they greatly assisted me. Sports brought me out of my shell. Um, when we uh, integrated an all white school in the early 1970s, as you can imagine, it was it wasn't a seamless integration. <laughs> okay, we were there were there were there were fights. There weren't all out brawls, but there were there were fights. There was you know tension. We were being called the N word, and you know, and go back where you came from. Everybody wasn't doing that, but it was enough people who were who were doing it. And the thing that that finally brought our school together was sports. Yeah. Because when we showed up, when you know the blacks showed up, there's one thing we could do now. We could play some sports. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean sports, sports so, right now I'll let you know that, you know, like listen, certain certain um segments of sports are dominated and and benefit because of diversity, right? Mm-hmm, like it wasn't mm-hmm. for um, diversity in athletes, just it, competition wouldn't be as rigorous as it is. Mm-hmm. Okay, but I have a question. So, so no one's ever said to me, go back where you come from um, because I think I had the fortune to grow up in a space in spaces that didn't really allow for that for different reasons. Like part of it was like I grew up in, in a pre-gentrified uh, place when I was younger uh then i got an opportunity to go to boarding school so um 
I think that became an equalizer of sorts. Like the, the socioeconomic stuff became an equalizer. Then I got to college yeah. and then I became old enough to punch somebody if they ever said it. Go out there, I will punch you if you ever said it. Let me go home. Unless I'm at a bar and you're literally telling me, go where you came from because you're a little drunk. But I, I, I digress to say this, right? Like, I don't know how I'd react to someone saying, uh, go back to where you came from. But but I think what's a more interesting question is, is did you ever really understand the where you came from portion of it when they were saying it to you? Did you know that to be Africa? Did you know that to be, where did you think go back where you came from meant that you were supposed to go to? Because I imagine that early on, there still might be some dissonance between your African-American self and your mm -hmm. ancestral African self. So did you know when people were throwing those jibes at you and saying those like those kind of nasty things? Did you understand what they were referring to? No. Um, when I first heard that, I was uh, middle school-ish time frame. And we had, we had uh, been at that school integrated for maybe about four years or so. And when someone said that, I immediately thought what they meant was go back to the cotton field, go back to, you know, the place where slaves are supposed to be or black people are supposed to be. Got it. That's what I thought it meant. Did you think that that's what they meant? Or that is that what their understanding of the term meant also at that time? No, I, th I think they were saying it because they were saying basically go back to Africa. Okay, that's what I, okay, cool. Yeah. So, so you interpreted mm -hmm. it as your context of the black experience. Was right. Different. Cottonfield right. slavery, and right. and they had a, a broader context. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, got it. Okay, absolutely, absolutely. So it it's it, but it so just so happened that it was sports that that finally brought us together. And I don't know if you've ever saw the movie Remember the Titans with Denzel Washington and how this black group and this white group is struggling, but the thing that brings them together is football. Well, the thing that brought us together was football and basketball. So we, we, we were put into a situation to where we had to work together. Yeah. You know, blacks and whites on the, same, on the same team, even if we didn't like each other. We had to, at least for, those, for, the, for that time on, on that clock, we had to play together. Yeah. But once we played together, rode the bus together, ate together, and began to really, really talk and, and, and find out more about each other, hey, hey, we began to actually like each other. Now, you know, let me say this. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do a, a slight slight pushback, slight pushback. You know what I'm saying? Like this, because I I feel like there's an observation that is starting to become very sort of apparent, especially in books in, that lend itself towards fiction or sometimes non-fiction retells uh, or like bi biopic sort of biographies, mm -hmm. uh, autobiographies that deal with race, um, specifically in film and TV. Um, we'll leave cartoon and comic books out of it because we know that we're trying to catch up. Those are trying to catch up. Um, but in TV and film, do you find that the discussion of race tends to be steeped in the emotional side of it, or sort of this? You don't know me. I don't know you. And so we need to, if we just sat around and talked to each other, we'd find out. As opposed to what what we understand racism to really be which is um policies institutions 
um, uh, uh, spending, job opportunity, like um, uh, school uh, and zoning practices. Like, do you find that like so much of why people don't really understand racism is, and I'm just going to use this, is because of movies that are similar to Remember the Titans. And I'm not going to use Remember the Titans because I think yeah. it's a crazy movie. But that sort of simplified in this emotional way where people are like, oh, the sentiment in the world is that, you know, black or brown or Asian people aren't bad and therefore racism must be stop- uh, it must be done with, right. right? As opposed to really understanding that these movies are really representing an emotional side to it, mm-hmm. a very specific spectrum of it that most people can understand, but that doesn't actually represent what are the main problems and main discourse around racism. Right. So I have experienced that people tend to view it as a more emotional type, movie run type. It's like, you know, if you can just get to know me, then you would like me and we could walk off together with our arms around each other and everything would be fine. Never mind the hospitals and the schools and the neighborhoods and the water and everything else, you know. So we do have to deal with some things um, just like just like uh, you said, we have to deal with those other things that really drive, that really are the result of racism. Yeah. But first, I think that we have to get some more people on our side. And when I say, when I say our side, yeah. I mean all people who really want everybody to be equal and who really want everyone to have what they need in their neighborhoods, in their schools, who really want everyone to have a doctor and health care and food to eat and a job. You know, we all have to come together regardless of our colors and make these unjust systems that you just named, right? Because we are the ones who do the voting. We have to put people in power and in places that are going to ensure that we truly do have an environment around us that is just and equal. So uh, we just have to keep keep working at it. Yeah, because the, the real thing is emotional, the emotional determiners for having prejudice or racist thoughts versus not really could only extend to the person that you know now. Right. That doesn't really change your feelings about people. It doesn't really make room for equity and equality. It just makes room for this elevated person who who is cool, who is better, who is more relatable, doesn't necessarily mean that that grace, that understanding, that clarity extends to everyone else. And I think it's not until, right, you understand the more institutional parts of the issue that you understand that it's not about whether someone is likable or not. It's about someone's humanity. Like whether you're likable is is it doesn't matter the the question i think becomes do we as people deserve to have access to food access to hospitals mm-hmm. access to solid education right whether you yeah. like someone or not whether you agree with the statistics that show that someone will probably do something that becomes that's all the emotional sort of politics around it right, right. the question right. really just becomes do you have a clear understanding of mm-hmm. the bigger determiners that keep one uh, group of individuals um, mm-hmm. down versus another group? Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And if you can finally break through to someone, like you said, maybe maybe that liking can come into play in a small way. Okay. Maybe that maybe it can cause someone to think about who they're going to vote for. Okay. As opposed to voting for a person that they've been voting for because their family voted for them. You know. Got it. You know. So you're talking about you know, who knows? So you're saying yeah, one influence may have an influence on another person yes. that helps them, and that person may not necessarily agree with everything about right. that group of of uh, that group of the group of people that that person represents, mm-hmm. right? But they, right. they can still maybe influence their thought just by being one human to another human. Absolutely, I, absolutely, I'll with that. I'll absolutely. With that. No, and I take back what I said about remember the things. That's making y'all vote for other people. Y'all go watch remember the things. I imagine it's on Netflix and or like Hulu or something like that. You guys check it out. Emotional racism solving yeah. is a thing. I'm, I'm with you on that now. Yeah, with yeah, you. absolutely, absolutely. We just need to do it on a bigger scale, though. It has to be on a really, really big scale, you know, which is why we have to keep talking about it in a positive way, because believe it or not, there are lots of white brothers and sisters out there who really want to understand, but they are afraid. They are afraid. I had one person, and this is a true story, I had one person to request a copy of my book. She was a, a, a... white lady. Plug that book one, one time for the audience. Uh, black and white. <laughs> healing racial, racial divide. Here we go. And it's not popular today for white people to read books on race. If in case you have noticed, it is, it is not popular. And so she quietly mm-hmm. requested a copy of my book. Quietly. Quietly. Can I have, can I have a copy of your book? Okay. okay. So she went and read it. And I noticed that online she posted a kind of builded review. Okay. Uh, didn't say it was bad, but what she was, what she said was um, basically saying white people have it bad too. It's not just black people who have who have it bad. White people are having challenges and all these things too. Absolutely. But I noticed she did something which, which kind of struck me. She okay. took my book off of her review list. Normally, once you review a book within Amazon, people can go on 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 your little you know page that you have set up, yeah. and they and they can see the list of books that you review. Well, it goes there automatically. So she took it off because I went and looked. She took my book off the list of of the books that she had read and reviewed and that spoke loudly to me because she must have been afraid well so so you said that and i got two very different ideas so okay let's let's clarify this what what your what your conclusion is for the audience so i'm going to give my conclusion of what i thought you were saying I, i got two different thoughts of it and then you let me know what actually what you actually feel like happened so the first was i was like well she reviewed it I'm in New York, guys, so if you hear the sirens, I'm in New York. Hopefully, they're going to save somebody um, and not going to get food. All right, so um, uh, the first thing that I thought was, hey, this review is going to stand, but I don't necessarily want people to see that I reviewed the book in the way that I did because if people see my review, they're going to – they're going to draw conclusions from what I'm saying, right or wrong, and that may have a negative impact on me as a reviewer. That's the first thing. 
And the second thing mm-hmm. I thought was, well, maybe she just doesn't want to really have this as a poster review because the topic is so polarizing that maybe I should just stay away from this completely. It has less to do with the review that I wrote and more to do with just maybe this ain't my content. And sometimes, you know, you, you're, you're, you're in spaces that are not your content. You're like, I don't right. know. I'm just going to stay away from my new children's books. I wanted to read this. <laughs> review this. I don't really know if this is my content. So did you think it was A or B, A being that it was the review and she didn't, she, she was kind of concerned about some of the conclusions that people would draw from her review? Do you think it was B that she just recognized that this book may not be a good fit for her review system for whatever the reason, uh, or maybe a combination of both, or both are, are kind of wrong and, and here's a different view that you have? You know, now, now that you said that, you really made me think it could be a combination of A and B both. I drew the conclusion that because she was the wife of a of a cop yeah. uh, was that she probably did not want a whole lot of people to know that she read a book about, you know, black and white. Yeah. Read, read, read a book about, about race because like, like, like I said, this is not a pop, it's not popular today, you know, to be a white person, especially if you are a white conservative or you know political person like that to yeah. to be caught to be you know reading a book trying to talking about race so, because so wait know. wait wait hold pause because I want to 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 question this so do you think that that's true across the board or do you think that that is maybe age specific because and, and, and this is right we we, we are. For lack of a better term, when people talk about equality, when people talk about diversity and inclusion, people call it woke, right? And woke has kind of become this sort of negative connotation about trying to create diversity in a way that doesn't provide value. When woke is actually a term that was derived to say that someone's come to a certain awareness about privilege, status, understanding whether you're on the receiving end of it or if you're on the deserving end of it. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of people, I think, that are not black or not a marginalized group. That are privileged, that are reading about the privilege that they have to sort of understand a bit more about the experiences in the world. Right. I would maybe, though, argue that. In my experience, my very humble experience. Some of the younger folks think they know so much about it that they don't have to read up on history and context because they live in like a colorless world. Like, you know, color doesn't exist right. for me, right? Like things don't exist in the same way that, that they did for an older generation. Mm-hmm. And for them, they just, I, I'm question whether they know it or recognize it. And then for an older generation that believes that, that lived it and in a way has a more emotional guttural response to it because they might have participated in it, might have lived it, might have not known what to do. I think there might be a middle generation that's kind of like a little bit like, I kind of want to be woke. I kind of want to know a little bit more about it. So what's your experience? Do you think it divides into age? Are you seeing differences in maybe how people respond to it in terms of gender? Like, are there are there, are there spaces of non-marginalized groups that also are into the discourse and conversation around race? Or are we reading it for ourselves to, to heal our own experiences? I have, I have found in my 
oh five or six years of really dealing with this with this issue, talking about it, uh, writing about it. I have found that the majority of people who pretty much don't want anything to, to do with it yeah. are pretty much in the upper age group. Okay. Um, high fifties, sixties, seventies. To in my experience, is that it's been harder for me to have a really open and honest conversation with most of the people in that group. Not all, but 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 most. And then you have your middle age group, you know, forties, thirties. They're the ones that really do want to know about it. Yeah. I'm interested in it. I want to know about it, but I also want to be cautious because, you know, I have my reputation. I have my group, my clique. I have my, you know, political buddies or whatever, yeah. you know. And then there are the the younger, younger, the you know, twenties, eighteens who just want to know. Yeah. Yeah. They just want to know, yeah. you know. And they will, you know, turn stones over. They'll ask you questions because they are eager to conversate about it. You know. So, question, right? So, do you think that it's difficult? for people that are experiencing privilege, right? Because because as much as I think, okay, so as much as I think it would be simple, as we're discussing it, I'm realizing it may be difficult. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna phrase the question for you. Do you believe that it's hard for people to introduce anti-racist notions in their lives if they have an experience, a level of privilege that buffers them from having to acknowledge it. Do you think it's difficult for them to have anti-racist conversations like, whoa, you just said that, or whoa, you just implied that and call people out? Do you think that like it's difficult for them? And so that's why they make you away from it? Um, yes, yes. Yeah, um, once a person has, like you said, privilege of being seated in some of the best places in a restaurant, yeah, uh, being served before someone else does, or, you know, any situation, clothing store, the privilege of not being followed. Uh, lots of times, that person who's not being followed even is not even aware that you're being followed. Yeah. All they know is, hey, I'm having a good time. <laughs> yeah. And once you walk up to them and say, hey, psh, 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 hey, that guy's over, over there has been following me for the last five minutes. <laughs> you know? No, no, no. Really? By the way, guys, I'm laughing because the situation is not funny. I think we're both laughing for the same reason. The situation is not funny, but it's uh, it's absurd the conversations that you have to engage in mm -hmm. when someone has never experienced right. a form of prejudice or racism that yeah. you have. So yeah. you're having conversations with someone who's never experienced it, and yeah. they're either like, I have no clue what you're talking about, right. or their eyes are and mind is blown to this idea mm -hmm. that this thing has been happening that yep. they just never, they never witnessed or right. experienced in the same way that you have so that it's commonplace. So I think it's funny because right. I've had those conversations. I think mm -hmm. I imagine Charles had those conversations. So the conversation is funny. That, the incident is not funny. It's serious. Right. And it's problematic and it's targeting and policing of people right. uh, by individuals that are not trained to do that. Mm -hmm. But it's funny because I think we all have had those moments. Where we mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. Like, no, we're not. And it's like, <laughs> 
That person has been walking behind us. Right. <laughs> walking behind me. They're not even walking behind us. They're walking behind me for the last five minutes, right? And the person's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it, it is difficult for some people to recognize it because they're just going about their, their world. You know, they don't have any issues. They're not being pulled over three or four times a month. They're just living their lives. But then there are other people who know fully well what's going on, and they could be the very ones who are out there putting it on people, you know. So, so listen, yeah. I, I want to. So, so I want to talk to you because I, I, first I want to get to. Well, no. Second, I want to get to some of the strategies, thoughts that you have, ideas that you have that you present in the book, Black and White: uh, Healing the Racial Divide. Mm-hmm. Um, I want I want to talk about that, right? Like I want to spend some time talking about what you discovered in the book. What are you uncovering? What are you discussing? But first, I want to talk about this because it's a conversation that I've I've been having with folks um, in my life about um, this understanding of of racist notion, mm-hmm. right? And and it, it's. It's my experience that so you can harbor as the same race as another person racist ideals. Now, it doesn't make you, you know, this idea that, you know, black and brown people can't be racist because they're marginalized. I find that black and brown people can be racist. Yeah. Specifically harboring racist ideas amongst one another. Yes. Right. And, and yes. it's deeper than just colorism or featureism. This mm-hmm. is just like I'm in a store and I'm being followed by someone who is displaying racist sort of policing of me. And that person mm-hmm. may actually look like me. Right. And mm-hmm. harbor this mm-hmm. police system that excludes them from it, but includes me in it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so how have you been able to approach sort of racist notions that are held within the same group of people, right? Because it's easy to go right. black and white. It's easy to go black and white, right? That becomes right. slavery, civil rights, segregation, Jim Crow, lynchings. We that's clear, apparent history yes. that we can address. Yes, this is a bit more nuanced because I can fully appear black, fully have black heritage, mm-hmm. and hold on to anti-black racist notions in my mind. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and Absolutely. Not really. And it could and I could be anti race I could also have gender notions in my mind. So I could have mm-hmm. I could be anti racist toward women, but racist towards men as my differing understanding of black men versus black women. So it's not just about race, it's not like this right. broad stroke. It's this idea that I could I could harbor these feelings and then selectively apply the intersections that mm-hmm. I can it apply. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with understanding of racist notions in people we have to go way back and that's one of the things i do in the in the in the book is is we have to realize that our history did not begin in 1619 we have to go way back thousands of years before the transatlantic slave period and understand how our ancestors lived and how they interacted with each other way back then and even way back then, thousands of years pre-transatlantic slave trade, we were fighting each other. There was racism among each other. And some of it was based on, you know, clans and tribes. But 
some of it was based on skin color too you know darker blacks against the lighter skin what we would call blacks and so there has been a long 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 history of us having racism among ourselves meaning looking down upon each other whether it is a family or whether it's a skin color or whether it's the size of our lips or the size of our eyes or you know whatever you know so sadly that continues today you know uh, and one of the things one of the terms that I talk about in the book as evidence of that is what we used to call high high yellow okay which is a term that means a black a, a, a lighter skinned black person you know but back in the oh I'm gonna say 1940s 50s you know that was a very very derogatory term that black people threw at one another you know so it's, it's like we do have to face the fact that we have some stuff in us that we have to come to terms with and deal with and clean up and recognize and say yeah that, that I shouldn't be thinking like that I shouldn't be thinking about my brother or my sister like that you know it doesn't matter what shade of skin color you are you're still a person of color and you know we are brothers and sisters but so we until we get to that point and and acknowledge that and say we got some issues too we got to deal with you know then we can move over and start talking to our white brothers and sisters but yeah i mean i also you know i think that um we 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 oftentimes talk about like um like featureism like you were mentioning the nose and eyes and, and and colorism which is skin but like i've also had to do some talks around um our, our understanding around two ideas that in a specific context support one another and this idea that of ghetto and then associating ghetto with blackness, right? Mm -hmm. So you'll oftentimes see people in one culture calling their other part, uh, other folks in their culture ghetto. And this mm -hmm. isn't just a black thing or white thing. This is just like right. everywhere thing. Like people yeah. have this notion of ghetto. So when we are looking at resumes and a Mercedes comes up or a Taekwon comes up, right? Like are we are we passing over them because? Uh, we're applying adjectives to their name that has nothing to do with their individual lived experience, right? Like we don't right. choose our names, right? right? We don't choose our families. We grow mm -hmm. into them and we flourish as human beings. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just aside from like, you know, just, you know, are, 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 are you, are you putting, um, you know, safe uh, food options? Are you putting, um, rec centers to allow for things right. like community to be built? Question is, is like, are you person of color, non-person of color, whatever? Are you doing something as simple as looking at a name and deciding whether someone is worthy based on their name and yes. the assumptions that go with their name, right? So, like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm a Dion Brown. In some spaces, Dion is, you know, whatever. I, I look at a name like Charles Holly, right? And 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 it's questionable how much right. opportunity is given to a name like Charles Holly, which mm -hmm. is very generic in its, 
and its naming, right? And how many opportunities would it be given to a Jaquan Holly yes. or a, a Rufus Holly, right? Where yes. maybe the name in some way starts to identify mm-hmm. what a person might think is a precursor to race. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, it, 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 it is quite natural for us to look at a name and draw some things from that name. Yep. If someone's last name happens to be Martinez, yep. you know, yep. what does that mean? Well, yep. you know, so that's quite natural. Now, it doesn't automatically mean that we can put stumbling blocks in front of them because of their name. We shouldn't do that. We all know that. Yeah. And but But your question is valid. Does it happen? I, yeah, it, it does happen. I, I I really do believe it happened. And in in fact, there are studies that actually show it shows that it happened. That we have been deeply, deeply rooted that you know names and meanings and associations. That's how this country was built. Yeah. You know, and so if you have a European name, then like a Charles or a John, you know. Then hey, yeah, and and make, make the man, okay. right? that's yeah. Thing, okay? like yeah. like like you know just the, all that stuff. Okay, so I want to talk to you about the book. So so talk to me. What are what are some of you know some strategies, some ways of thinking, some ways of approaching that we can do? And let me say this, guys. Make sure you go out and check out the book. The book is award-winning so it's not like uh you know it's not like a, a yang yang i just threw this together on amazon but this is a book book right like because i think that there is a differentiation in authors um i'm also going to be dropping a book i hope my book is good if you don't call me an amazon. <laughs> but um there is a difference so this is a great book so talk to us about you know before we go out and buy, purchase this book um what what's some things that we can learn from the book about what it is to heal the racial divide sure so the first thing I do is I really talk about colors, right? And how we all love colors and how we associate colors with nature and how we love to see all these different colors in nature. But then when it comes to human beings, we have this whole different mindset, right? And so I talk about how can we get to see each other, see people the same way we see nature. Got right? So... One of the things that I talk about is how do we communicate? How do we talk to each other as opposed to talking at each other? So how do we come together and have valuable, constructive conversations about a subject that you and I are really afraid to talk about when we sit and see each other face to face? Okay. And so one of the things that I say Okay, that we should never ever do is to blame each other for the past of our ancestors. All right. So I go back and wait, I talk. Wait, I talk wait, about. Pause, okay, go ahead. So blame. Go ahead. So blame is a very particular word. So because some people can say someone someone can take recognition of privilege and opportunity. And call that blame. So if I'm asking you right. to recognize that you have preference in the world, that you that you right. get opportunity in the world, people can say that that's blaming. So how do you differentiate blame versus acknowledgement or recognition of 
privilege and status and opportunity and preference? How do you how do you differentiate that? That is an excellent, excellent question. You differentiate it by when you say I recognize that you now have a privilege. Mm -hmm. Okay. And your privilege is X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. That privilege came about because someone in your past, you know, or some group of people in your past did X, Y, or Z. Yep. Agreed. Now, now notice what I said. I said, you didn't do it. Yeah. But you have the privilege. Yeah. Can't deny that you have the privilege, but it wasn't you who set it all up. But you're benefiting from it right now. Unless you did. You know. I mean, that's a different thing. <laughs> because now we're talking about that's not blame, that's accountability. <laughs> right. Absolutely. 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 So so when you have no evidence that someone directly did something, you know, we need to really be very, very careful about our words because sometimes we can say, and y'all did this, and y'all white people did this, and that implies that Hey, I did something that, you know, 200 years ago or, or 100 years ago, my, my great, great, great granddaddy did, you know, and that, that, that may not be true. So, okay. to go back to, so, so I want you to go back to your point about not blaming, but I, I want to, I just want to segue into one more thing. Guys, I told you I was going to be interrupting. I hope I'm asking questions. You got one here looking at, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to get to, to the stuff. So when we talk about, um, an idea around like people sort of saying y'all and saying y'all and saying y'all. Do you think that's because so few people that are marginalized, black, brown, what have you, get opportunities to discuss their lived experience with the privileged, with the majority as minorities, whether it, does, it comes down to gender, race, sexual orientation, whatever the thing is, right? Like, do you think that people just get, it's like this sense of release. And so they can't really focus the conversation because they have been, they have had such few access to have the conversation that when they do, it's like they're bursting at the seams with so much of an experience that they haven't been able to share and articulate and feel safe to even discuss. So now whoever they're talking to is on the receiving end of, years and generations and all that right all that catharsis coming out and so it's less about the person the y'all is it then you're the person who decided to have the conversation with me so you're going to get all these years of experience or do you think that people in fact look at a larger race and think that every person is a part of that race so when they say y'all they really are talking about y'all i think it's a little bit of both okay as people of color we are quite naturally a little bit more expressive than some other people especially in the uh, european culture yeah. uh, in that culture it's, it's much more acceptable to be you know in control and you're and you know and you when you talk you express yourself but when it comes to us we express ourselves with our body with our mouth with our head and everything else and so and when we become passionate about something and race race is something that we are very, very passionate about, it can seem like we are angry. Got it. But we're just expressing ourselves, you know, in the natural way that we express ourselves. And I think you okay. see that oftentimes in 
in well back back up for a second guys i think it's really important that when we talk about experiences we talk about our lived experiences but then we also have the ability to like make sure that we put it into a broader context right Mm -hmm. so here's what i'm gonna say i think that that is true i think it's also true of places of people that derive and or live in places where they are subjugated right so when you don't have access to free speech when you don't have access to free thought when you don't have access to to um education systems when you're robbed of debate right when when right i i know that i grew up in a don't touch that culture i've talked about this on the podcast when i was a kid everybody told me not to touch it i think i now realize that the adults were afraid to touch it too because they grew up in a time where like you broke something, you could get killed. Right. Like it just the 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 incident never fit the reaction, and so they were trying to protect us the best way that they knew how. I'm being like, don't touch that, don't speak to those people, don't you know, keep your head down, just right. safe, right. right? And so I think when you are when you grow up in with a people that has been marginalized, that have been affected, I think that sort of need to express, need to be heard, need to be seen become so important because in their daily lives, they're not seen, they're not heard, they're not respected, they're not valued. So you tend to get really animated because Mm -hmm. you, you need, you want to be heard and you're going to use all of your body performance faculties, energy in order to convey Mm -hmm. how worthy, right? Because all this is about how worthy what you're saying is, right? Like, Like, listen to me, hear me. Like, I'm passionate. I'm talking with my hands because I, I, what I'm saying has value. What, I, what I'm yes. saying should take up space. And maybe in parts of my life, parts of my lived experience, I don't take up that space of value. Right. It's a work. Right. Absolutely. 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 And, and when, but we, I do say okay. in the actual book is that we really need to take note, though, of how we present ourselves. Because there is this notion still out there of the angry black man, you know, that has been used for so, so many years. And so we really need to be cognizant of how we're expressing ourselves because we don't want to come across as the angry black man. What we want to do is we want to say something in such a way that a person goes, you know what? I really hadn't thought about that. Now listen, no. Charles. You you had me for a second. Now listen. I don't know about that because <laughs> if someone's coming into the conversation with notions and expectations, it doesn't matter how polite you are. It doesn't matter how articulate you are. It doesn't matter um, how how much you reduce your your excitement level or, or passion or emotion around the conversation. If they decided that you're angry, they decided that you're angry, right? Mm-hmm. If they decided that you're problematic, they decided you're problematic. If they decided that you're they're confrontational. They've decided that you're confrontational. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's nothing you can really do about it, right? Like, right. you're convincing to someone who's already made up their mind in that way. Right. But not, they have to change, not you. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. is it a matter of kind of like being aware of your audience, um, right? So that you're, 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 you're not talking at a person, you're talking to them, understanding mm-hmm. that, they may not have the same context of um, closeness to the topic that you have. They may not have the same passion about it because they haven't lived it. Or do you think that that is a, a form of code switching? 
Like, is that a form of changing how you would naturally speak, naturally deliver this, because you don't want to be perceived in a way that makes you problematic? So I'm getting to uh, your answer mm. so far has been it's a little bit of both, and I received <laughs> a little bit of both. So I'm going to ask you, which one do you think it is? <laughs> okay, I'm going to... I'm going to answer your question okay. by sharing with you something that I say in in the in the book that when when we're talking, this is one major mistake that I know most of us make, black and white, when we enter into this conversation. Okay, we enter into a conversation expecting to get someone to agree with us. Ooh, agree. Uh uh and that's that's ninety nine percent of the how of the time that's that's never gonna happen i like that i like never and so that's one of the reasons why i do i'm just gonna speak speak for me that's that's one of the reasons why i tend to get so animated and expressive and because i'm trying to shake a person i'm trying to say don't you see what i'm saying (laughs) and i'm expecting somebody to say i see now i see now yeah Yeah. (laughs) but they're not going to ever say that. Yeah. Nine out of ten times, this, this is this not going to ever say that. You, right? like, yeah. They have to change, not you. Right, yeah. right, yeah. right. And have. so when I change my mentality from I'm trying to make someone see what I see, feel what I feel, experience what I, what I experience, and agree with me and shake their head and say, yeah, everything you just said is right. When I change my perspective in, into saying okay i want to make sure this person understands not that they agree but that they understand and once you make sure that a person understands they might not ever agree to your face but i guarantee you they will walk off and at least think about it listen charles we're at the end of the episode i have three things i need from you to close First, I ask a question to everyone that's been on Man versus Brand. It's a question that I'm very interested in what you have to say because we definitely know that you like Remember the Titans. So I'm going to ask you this. On any streaming platform, podcast, and or book, was something that you recently consumed that you thoroughly enjoyed? Oh, my goodness. Something that I recently consumed that yep. I thoroughly enjoy. Podcast, book, any streaming platform, something that someone else can can have access to if they are interested in it. Um, I just watched Luther. Luther is a movie starring Eerbridges Elbert. I, I, I can't you say know, that man. Luther is phenomenal. I just watched it. I love that. That yeah. is, it was awesome. I love that that movie, and I love him as an actor as well. He's just a very talented actor. But I saw that movie. It is it is really really good. All right, so yeah. uh, I know this guys. It's one of the ones I know. So it's on Netflix currently. It's mm-hmm. trending as one of its top movies. So you can definitely check yep. it out. And I, I think this might be a series because Luther. So I think it's a uh, like a movie that's broken up into segments, possibly. Mm-hmm. I'm not mm-hmm. quite sure, yeah. but yeah. Uh, if you also are interested in old Luther, because I think Luther was out maybe 2014, 2015, check out bbc.com. Uh, if you have BBC on any channel, you can check out old episodes of Luther. This is kind of like pre-super super mega star Idris Elba. So this is where he was really getting the acting in. Um, he's a gritty police 
uh, a detective constable. I think they're called yeah. constables out there. I don't quite yeah. know, but check yeah. it out because it's, it's awesome. Um, so thank you for that recommendation, Charles. Mm -hmm. All right, yeah. second one. So, uh, and it cannot be the same uh, movie. Right? <laughs> By the way, it can't be the same one. Um, so the second question is on any streaming platform, uh, podcast, and or book, um, or experience. I'll, 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 I'll move it out to experience. Um, what's something that you thoroughly enjoy that people that know you may not necessarily expect? This doesn't have to be a guilty mm. pleasure. It could be what's something that you really like that folks may not necessarily associate with. Really? Uh, it could be like a genre. It could be like a movie. Yeah, like yeah. What is something I really love is sports. Now, sports. Yeah, yeah. Um, soccer. I mean, people don't really think of me as a soccer fan, but I love soccer. You know, yeah, you, watching you, you, you all of the, the competition. Cheering it on? Yeah. I mean, it's it's like I didn't like it, but I just I just really fell in love with it, I think, this year because, you know, we made it so far as a nation, United yeah. States and everything. Yeah. And I just I just started, you know, watching a whole lot of it. And I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. I'm here for that. I love a little soccer. I played soccer in yeah. high school, intramural in college. Um, oh. And okay. uh, I, I did not. It did not. It did not stick for me. Like I, I, I think I play lacrosse too, and I wrestle. None of those things stuck. Yeah. All the things that I didn't play, I now enjoy. Football, baseball. <laughs> All things you thought I would want to play, I did not play. I played everything else, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. And I loved that I recognized what's happening. I could listen to the the commentators and understand what they're talking about. But I realized that I, 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 I might have played myself into no longer liking. It. <laughs> Because uh, I don't like, and I, back then I think I was like football, eh, I'm cool. Basketball, eh, I'm cool. Like, like baseball, eh, I'm cool. I, I was like, oh, I wanna, I wanna wrestle. I think I like things that were more contact sport related, mm -hmm. but it just wasn't football. Okay. Um, so okay. I ended up playing those sorts of contact sports and realized that as you're talking to me as an adult, I am not as into it as my 17, 18, 19 year old self was. And that's interesting. It talks about growth, man. I, I kind of grew out yeah. of that. All right, so talk to me, Charles. What are ways that people can get the book and or get content that you're putting out? Um, so, so where can folks go to right now if they're like, man, this is a book I want to read. Where should they go to? My website is speakerholly.com. That's speaker, H-O-L-L-E-Y.com. And everything's on my website, my speaking engagements, and, and whatever. But my books are also on Amazon. So if you want want any of them, I have over six books out now. Uh, they're also on Draft to Digital. So if you're a fan of Apple and all of that, all, all all those digital versions, it's there, it's there as well. So I welcome you to to go online, Amazon, Draft to Digital. Go to my website and uh, check it out. All right. Awesome, man. Listen, Charles, thank you so much for being on the episode of the podcast. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I feel so much more enlightened um, and informed based on it. And I feel like, you know, what I appreciate most is great conversation about this topic, because I think that folks tend to shy away from it now because everyone wants to be centrist. Right. They want to appeal to everyone. They want to appeal to all right. quadrants of folks. Right. And I think right. that in order to do so, you have to 
be able to have conversation and dialogue about the barriers that keep the quadrants quadrants, right? Why Absolutely. Are we not a group? Why are we quadrants still? And, and until I think we, we discuss it and have conversation and, and have policy that affects us in a positive way, we are consistently separated. Man, I'm so glad that that young 17th child out of Alabama grew up to be a man that writes these type of books, that has these type of conversations, and that was able to join my podcast. Thank you so much, Charles, for being here. I know um, folks that are going to watch this in the replay on the podcast platforms in the live, they very much appreciate the talk that we had. I definitely appreciate the conversation. And uh, thank you so much, man. Thank you, Dion. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so All much. Right. Thank you, audience. I love you guys. And we'll catch you the next time. Love you. Bye. If this talk resonated with you or could help someone you know, follow me or my guest on all social media platforms. Make sure to look us up on YouTube and check me out anywhere that content like this is being shared. Till next time. Love you. Bye.